Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak, with me, as always, Christian Chiller. Hope everybody's okay, hope everybody's well. I'm having an interesting week, one of those sort of strange weeks where you have mixtures of good news and bad news and strange news and plans and unplanned and all sorts. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> it's only Wednesday. Um, okay, I have a really nice interview in this episode that I did um, a couple of weeks back, maybe a month ago now, with Tess Rinnison of Interchain. We talk a little bit about Interchain Cosmos Tendermint, which I have covered a bit before. But then, uh, so it's a kind of blockchain of blockchains. I haven't done much blockchain content recently. And then we actually have a much broader discussion around all sorts of things to do with technology. That's a really interesting interview. I really enjoyed the chat and I hope you will too. But first, let's look at my links for the week. Firstly, from NF Mendoza on Tech Republic. An article called People Are Working From Home and Spending More Time on Computers But Less Productive. This is according to a research study from Eternity, which, well, I think the title says it all, and I'm not really surprised. Um, it's a little bit stating the obvious. I uh, I think there's always been this um, circumstantial evidence in the past that working from home was better for productivity. This is partially true. I think the sorts of people who wanted to work from home were more productive, but uh, everyone being forced to work from home is not necessarily good for everybody. Uh, there are obviously lots of people and jobs and roles and companies that are not very easy to work from home as well. Um, so just because people are at home on computers doesn't necessarily mean they're accomplishing anything. Um, interestingly, I felt like I heard earlier in the whole uh, pandemic lockdown period that um, people were being more productive, but I can't remember where I read that or what backed it up. So I guess we should uh, follow this actual survey instead. The other interesting thing is that Europe is already seeing work from home decreasing. And I can actually confirm that. I have seen a lot more people now on public transport driving their cars. Things are somewhat slowly returning to a semblance of normality. Um, and I guess there was a lot of people who never wanted to work from home or it was just very difficult to do so. And actually, the the report, the survey mentions that people were spending an additional three hours on their computers. I wonder what they're measuring here, because I've certainly been spending a lot of time on my computer in the evening, but playing games with people, uh, chats, things like that. So I also don't know what they're counting as as uh, that time. Um, people do use computers for other things apart from work, so that doesn't necessarily mean they're being productive, which is fair enough. But the doesn't really go into details on that. I think people were hoping that the non-productive parts of the workday, like lunch, uh, going to the office, etc., etc., would kind of cancel out. And that isn't necessarily the case. I mean, this is also somewhat US-centric thinking. Um, a lot of people in the US have to commute quite a lot, whereas in Europe, um, in Berlin, an average commute is probably 20 minutes. So it's not very long. Uh, I think this is why also podcasters have seen their listening rates drop off because a lot of US listeners we do this on the commute and you know have no longer have a commute um and then i i don't know i find i take issue with uh coffee breaks and lunch breaks being labeled as unproductive i mean we're not machines you do need some downtime sometimes but uh, i think they thought that they would offset um and i guess that's the thing instead of having a chat around the water cooler or the coffee machine people are chatting online instead so that computer time is replacing the unproductive time. So I guess probably the real summary of this whole survey is things have largely remained the same, but people are just spending more time looking at their computers. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. 
christianchiller.com and you can find all the ways to get in touch with me as always. One more vaguely COVID-19 related story. I'm getting a little bit, it's probably the darkest story of the whole week. Uh, in, in, well, in the weekly squeak. This is by Sebastian Clovig Skelton on Computer Weekly. Surveillance capitalism in the age of COVID-19. I think this actually leads on quite nicely from the, the last article in some respects. The fact that we are spending a lot more time in front of our computers means that a lot more people know what we're doing with our computers. Um, and we're obviously traveling and moving around a lot less. And this starts to become much more relevant now. A lot of countries are starting to talk about contact tracing. And this is a very wide, broad topic, of course. But um, what this will mean, and certain countries are going to do this in different ways. Uh, I, I also I find it interesting that the kind of official Apple Google frameworks they've now put out for uh, people to make apps for this. I don't know how much scrutiny they've had. Uh, I guess they ha- must have, but I haven't come across many reports of it which I find interesting in itself as well, um, how these are companies that have traditionally, well, Google especially, have traditionally made a lot of money out of data. Um, can we really be sure they're going to do the right thing with it in the long run? Um, it's hard to say. Can we really trust the governments will, of course? Um, and what other uses could this data be used for, uh, legitimately or illegitimately? This is also a big potentially hacking target maybe i don't know it really depends on how the apps are implemented and i think to date now the only one that has just been released that follows the apple google framework is one that is now in trial in switzerland there have been other trials of different apps in the uk and australia i know that i don't think the one in australia is even on yet it's strangely been deployed but not working which seems a bit odd um, but maybe that makes us vague sort of sense. So this article actually is predominantly about what surveillance capitalism means and the person who first defined it, which I've been doing a bit more research on uh, generally recently. So I may talk about that in more detail in a future episode. And then, of course, that at the moment, these companies are, in theory, having a great time in terms of data. In terms of monetizing that data, I'm not sure about. I'm pretty sure a lot of ad-supported uh, businesses, in fact, I know for a fact, some are not doing very well at all, and uh, other services that rely on advertising to fund themselves are not necessarily doing so well. Um, people are not necessarily consuming advertising in the normal ways right now. So there's a lot of impact here, actually. And, um, yeah, we, we don't really know um, what is happening to all this data we're creating at the moment. And there's a lot of new patterns. I think I also remember reading something about that what we're doing at the moment is and what we're not doing at the moment is really confusing Existing AI algorithms as well. <laughs> Someone think of the algorithms. Anyway, uh, have a read at the very least if you want to get a little bit of a, a quick overview into what uh, surveillance capitalism is and um, uh, how we might be falling greater victims to it in the next uh, few months. And uh, I suppose inform yourself to be aware of it and, and have some informed opinions on how you feel about it and whether you want to opt into a lot of the things you may be forced to or may have a choice over in the coming months. Okay, now a whole bunch of posts here. I mostly read uh, from VentureBeat and from ZDNet, a couple of different posts on Microsoft Build, uh, fully remote. I could have joined it, I guess. I somehow blinked and missed it. Uh, Microsoft announced a lot of things. I think my my most favorite summary of the the whole event was from one of my one of my regulars, Stephen J. Vaughan on ZDNet. 2020 will be the year of Linux on the Windows desktop. Uh, somewhat reminds me of an article I wrote a couple of years ago about um, will, God, I don't know what year it was then, be the year of the Linux desktop because uh, no one else cares. 
Um, Apple and Microsoft largely or slowly moving away from their desktop operating systems in varying measures, but Microsoft especially. I think I covered last week or the week before about declining user numbers and um, on on Windows, and um, but Linux and macOS are going up, Linux especially. And some of the interesting announcements that Microsoft made from this year's build are kind of pushing it towards almost being a Windows veneer on a Linux kernel, which opens it up to all sorts of interesting opportunities. For those who have always used Windows as Windows, nothing really changes unless they sort of deprioritize developing for it. Um, but also people like myself and people who work on, on technical things, Windows has always been a bit of a nightmare to use. And the uh, WSL, the Windows subsystem for Linux, which I did cover some time ago on this show as well, have provided a way for Windows users to take to, to be able to develop easier in some respects. It's still a bit messy in places. And if this becomes much more integrated, uh, this could be very, very interesting and very compelling. It's a little bit like uh, Chromebooks. Chromebooks have Chrome OS, which is very, very limited. Um, anything you can do in a browser, basically, which well, we could argue whether that's limited or not. But you can also actually run Debian applications. So this is interesting here. You get kind of these two veneers on top of Linux for the people who want it. And this is sort of what macOS is as well. It's actually not Linux. It's uh, BSD, which um, also is kind of behind Linux further back, which is why macOS has been, was popular with developers. But Apple are uh, kind of messing with that a lot, which hasn't helped. Um, but this could be very interesting. I keep experimenting with Windows and Linux, um, and I keep not really getting anywhere and not feeling very satisfied. I think a lot of the time I've been using somewhat cheap hardware, which has not helped. So it's not me comparing uh, Windows to Mac OS. It's me comparing my MacBook Pro to a budget Windows machine, which is possibly not a very fair comparison. Um yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I would like to give this an experiment some more. Um, I think WSL2 is coming out in the next few months, and they will keep adding to this, and we'll see what happens. And in addition to that, they also announced GPU access and better GUI access uh, to uh, WSL, or back and forth between WSL and Windows. And also the new terminal finally came out of preview, which I have been running for some time, which in theory now means you can have so many different terminals on Windows I'm not entirely sure which one will be the best option. And this is always one of my confusions with Windows, that you can install terminals and terminal environments and thus programming language environments in a multitude of different ways. And depending on the applications you want to use, which one connects to where can get utterly confusing. Uh, and I don't know if this is going to solve that problem or actually compound it. So we shall see. Interesting stuff. I will keep an eye on it over the coming months. Here is an article from um, a blog called The Obscurity by Phil Salvador. When SimCity got serious, the story of Max's business simulations and Sim Refinery. I really enjoyed this read. It was a little potted history, or well, a brief history of SimCity uh, and uh, the, the people behind that. But then they're kind of much forgotten and ill-fated business division that made simulations for business uh, NGOs, um, yes, including Sim Refinery. Uh, I think they made a politics simulator, all sorts of things. They weren't massively successful, <laughs> but it was interesting that a game that now looks so rudimentary when you compare it to something like City Skylines, uh, and people at the time were so blown away by it, and rightly so, um, that 
Uh, a lot of people wondered if they could use these simulations for other things. And Max's business unit looked at these. And I guess the, the, the problem came from a game, especially in those days, could not really replicate reality. And lots of uh, realizations were not realized. Accusations of bias and inaccuracy were leveraged. And, and a lot of projects were just too ambitious to ever really work. Um, most of the games they made, or games, simulations they made, are not that easy to find, um, not widely available. But uh, this, this history is quite interesting, and to see where the people behind them went to, um, a largely forgotten team, largely forgotten projects, when I mean, everyone remembers SimCity. Um, and actually, they also mentioned SimAnt in there, which I do remember. I'm sure... Maxis made other games apart from SimCity, SimCity 2000, SimCity 4. I'm sure they did other things as well that were similar. Sometimes I get the various uh, theme games, which I think were Bullfrog, uh, the the sort of Sid Meier type games and the Sim games. Not mixed up, but uh, they, they, they sort of blur at the edges a bit, remembering who made what Um and uh, if a game even existed, <laughs> or if you just imagined it. So, yeah, if you're into uh, computer history, which many of you know I am, and then take a look. And finally, a little bit of light relief on the Tenderly uh, Medium blog by Jack Shepard. Uh, every type of Zoom call participant illustrated by cats. I think that title says it all, really. I hope you enjoyed my links for the week. And now is my interview with Tess Renison from Interchain. Enjoy. I'm Tess, um, and I work at a pretty recently formed company called Interchain GmbH or Interchain GmbH, um, and we are a Berlin-based subsidiary of the Interchain Foundation, um, working on a variety of different projects in the Tendermint and Cosmos ecosystem. Um, so that's a lot of different names um, to, to describe, sort of. Um, a bunch of people working sort of towards one main mission, which is like a, a highly interoperable um, and relatively environmentally friendly uh, blockchain ecosystem. So to, to uh, sort of break down what a few of those entities are, um, the Interchain Foundation is this like um, nonprofit based in Switzerland uh, that funds a variety of different projects um, across the, uh, really across the whole blockchain ecosystem, but with a special interest in um, the Cosmos and Tendermint ecosystem. Okay. Let's very quickly recap. Um, I have spoken to people from Cosmos and Tendermint before, but let's quickly recap what they are. Absolutely. So um, Tendermint is a proof of stake consensus algorithm, um, which means that instead of um, using mining to come to consensus, like like uh, Bitcoin um, and, and a lot of other popular blockchains. Um, it uses a different kind of system called proof of stake, where uh, uh, nodes can, can become validators and, and participate in the, the block validation process um, by staking some collateral, which is kind of used as like a security deposit. Um, and once they do that, they, they can, um, they're, they're eligible to participate in, in network consensus. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like the very, very TLDR of um, Tendermint and proof of stake. Um, and then Cosmos is a um, blockchain network that's built using Tendermint. Um, and Cosmos is, 
sort of uh, specialty or long-term focus is on um, blockchain interoperability. So it's meant to be sort of like a central hub where a variety of different blockchains can all hook in using a protocol called IBC, mm-hmm. which we will be launching shortly. And I'm happy to talk about a little bit more, um, but different blockchains can hook into IBC or excuse me, can hook into the Cosmos hub using IBC. And so that sort of is like the goal and the point um, of the Cosmos project. Yeah, they're actually projects I have known about for some time. I'm also based in Berlin where you currently are. And I think I remember going to a Tendermint meetup oh, some time ago. <laughs> Um, I think, uh, I don't think I ever got one, but I know my friend has one of the t-shirts from that event. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's been some time. It was always something that was interesting to me. This kind of connecting of blockchains because it was always something that felt like a major flaw to me. Um, yeah. All these competing protocols and chains. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I think the, the, like I had been in the space, the blockchain space for a few years before getting involved with um, Tendermint and Cosmos. And this mission of interoperability really resonates with me because it was so clear that like there are all these different blockchains that are making different trade-offs and they're kind of designed for different use cases or with different priorities in mind. And it seemed like it would be so much more effective if they could actually communicate with each other rather than like competing against yep. each other because... Yeah. Yeah. So I'm the opposite of a maximalist, basically. Yeah. And I mean, this is, you know, a lot of people like to compare, which I sometimes think is a flawed comparison, the blockchain ecosystem right now to the internet ecosystem or whenever you want to count it. Um, But, you know, a lot of the protocols there were almost designed from the outset to somehow communicate with each other. Um, And then the Mm -hmm. ones that didn't have fallen away by the wayside. So, (laughs) so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. I think it's hard for people like us to know exactly what it was like because we're not really old enough to see if it's a fair comparison. But that's um, exactly going off at a bit of a tangent, anyway. So, so yeah, um, yeah. I would actually love to hear more about why you think it's a broken metaphor. I mean, my personal feeling is very much what you just said, which is like I I wasn't around to remember the early uh, days of the internet, and so I'm not comfortable making the comparison. I, a little bit of but. that. A little bit of that. Um, I also. I'm not qualified to remember or know how long it took for things to settle into use, general use. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the birth of these has been very different. Um, a lot of those projects kind of were uh, incubated in um, academia for some time and they were using them and then they became mainstream for other reasons. The, the funding model that emerged for blockchain projects not so much anymore, but in the past was very odd because it meant that people would get funded for an idea that had no grounds whatsoever and then have to build it in public with a lot of pressure, um, mm-hmm. which led to all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of problems. Uh, and I'm yes. starting to think, uh, if we take Ethereum as a good example, uh, Bitcoin as, a, as another probably good example that have been around for, in quote marks, some time, I'm starting to think that... Uh, when people say, "Oh, it's new," it's a bit of a, a bit of a crutch because some of those protocols are actually getting reasonably old now, and not much has changed. Um, yeah, and that's that's kind of actually the main one, I think, for me. But anyway, <laughs> so, yeah, so. that all resonates with me. Yeah. Okay. Um, so interchain is there to, I guess, help seed a lot of the ecosystem, which is, is not an uncommon. 
activity in this uh, blockchain um, ecosystem, usually as some kind of um, governance body over some of those funds that might have appeared in the past, et cetera, et cetera. Is that roughly the same thing for Interchain? Yeah, so I would draw a very, I mean, it's like very easy to get dragged yeah. into the the intricacies yeah. of the different entities here, but the, the Interchain Foundation, like the Swiss Foundation, is definitely that sort of um, body that controls a lot of the funds and can can make grants to different players in the space and try to, you know, cultivate an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what the foundation, again, the Swiss Foundation does. Um, the, the team that I work with, which is again, a kind of a funny thing, it's a subsidiary of that, um, foundation. We are more focused actually on core technologies. Um, so my team, um, is focused on, you know, maintaining and updating Tendermint core, um, the, the main implementation of that consensus, um, algorithm that I described earlier, um, as well as, as preparing and shipping and implementing IBC, Yep. Uh, the inter-blockchain uh, communication protocol, which is, you know, what will actually let these different blockchains talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And is that, uh, do, do, is the process, do people apply for funding or do you put out uh, particular calls for funding or a bit of both? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, um, the way that the foundation works is that um, they have uh, um, like a grants team, mm-hmm. Um, or actually some of the grants team works with us at the, I've just noticed one. Of anyway, the, one it doesn't really matter. But someone the, I know quite well as well. <laughs> okay, cool. cool. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I mean, small, small community. Um, and all, everyone's local. Right. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, it's a, it's a, a mix of like the, the foundation has a few kinds of projects that, um, are particularly interesting. And there's a list, I think either on the, um, Interchain Foundation website or or in one of their uh, GitHub repos where they describe like the kinds of projects that they're most interested in, mm-hmm. in, in funding around. Um, and it's pretty pretty broad reaching, actually. I think there's stuff in ranging from like security and cryptography to um, uh, serialization stuff mm-hmm. to like, it's, it's very, very broad. Um, but they list some things. Um, but often... Uh, Teams or entities, I think, also just go to the foundation um, and submit applications uh, for things that they're particularly interested in working on, too. And I haven't personally really been involved in the grants process, but my understanding is that it's typically a conversation between people working on the interchain side and then people working at these other entities to try to sort of find, like, you know, a good match um, and what's what will bring value to the ecosystem and sort of balancing it out. Uh, I know that, that people are happy to... Um, discuss possibilities with with teams who are interested in contributing. Yeah. Okay, so across all of these uh, different sort of projects and companies and subsidiaries, so I, yeah, I did speak with um, Jay almost exactly a year ago, just over a year ago. It was quite a popular episode, I'm just, just looking, um, as actually blockchain ones tend to be, strangely. Uh, <laughs> um what are some major kind of changes or announcements in that past year that might interest people? And I have a relatively technical audience, so feel free to cover whatever you yeah. think. Yeah, in the last year. So it's funny because, um, you know, a year ago, so I joined the project in August. Yep. So Fair. a year ago, I was also sort of a, a 
a community member, let's say, um, although I actually wasn't really working directly in the space. Um, but here's some of the things I know about. The Cosmos Hub itself launched, mm-hmm. um, which was about a year ago, yeah. which was a big deal, um, hi- highly awaited. Um, um, that, <laughs> And then um, Game of... Uh, so, so that happened. And then sort of as soon as the hub launched, all the attention shifted towards actually getting IBC working. Mm-hmm. So it sounds funny to say like, okay, the, the goal of the hub is to have um, uh, inter-blockchain communication. And then it would launch without the piece that actually does that. But it was sort of like, okay, let's get this like, you know, blockchain running on its own. And we will build it in such a way that we can hook other things in. Um, but, you know, we know that the inter-blockchain communication piece is like, something we can uh, build on top of this foundation. So let's get the foundation done first. Um, so uh, the hub launched and then all the attention turned towards um, IBC. And I would say that over the last year, as far as I know, most of the work has has happened in um, sort of like two, or most of the new developments have sort of been focused in two directions. Mm-hmm. Um, one has been in driving towards IBC and all of its... Um, um, sort of prerequisites. So there's a number of things that we wanted to do for Tendermint Core to sort of make um, IBC more um, uh, accessible and, and palatable, um, including a number of like refactors and things like that. Um, and then there's also been this big push towards uh, a, an incentivized testnet called Game of Zones. Mm-hmm. So um, Jay may have talked about a game of stakes, which had happened, I want to say at the end of 2018, um, which was sort of like the incentivized testnet to let people try out um, and kind of try to break the Cosmos hub before it launched. Um, And so the way these incentivized testnets, excuse me, the way these incentivized testnets, it's like a tongue twister, um, the way they work is that um, people can spin up their own um, chains or run their own validators and then try to use those validators to try to like break consensus in the case of game of stakes or in the case of game of zones, um, execute different kinds of attacks that would make IBC fail. So, and then if people uh, can successfully um, exploit the network, then they can win uh, prizes in in atoms, which is the the native cryptocurrency on the Cosmos Hub, um, for successfully doing these things. Yeah. So it's a way of like getting the community to um, to really test this stuff with us and really put it through its pieces, um, and they're incentivized to break it. So like they're really going to be trying yeah. to trying to do that, and so we can build a lot more confidence around the security robustness of, of the network and of these protocols yeah that's a it's a nice idea um and incentivizing with your own kind of inbuilt currency in quote marks is also uh, a nice way of um keeping it keeping things moving around the the network i suppose exactly yeah. exactly and i think that's a big part of what the icf is like invested yeah. in as well and with the uh the the ibc what is the like i mean i say it it feels like it's been in progress for some time but i mean in relatively speaking it's probably only been 3 years or something um what what is the the challenge in getting that uh released just at uh 
chains come and go so much to keeping up to date or an actual, you know, more low level challenge of, of producing something like that? What's been the main challenges in getting it sort of ready in quote marks? Yeah. So unfortunately I'm not actually working on IBC myself, so I can't, I can't speak too deeply to um, the details of it, but certainly one thing that's interesting is that, you know, you have to actually build something that lots of different blockchains can integrate Mm. with. Um, And, you know, different blockchains have different data models. They're, you know, they might do consensus in different ways. And so, um, you know, I think one of the design challenges with IBC is, is building something that is lightweight enough that lots of different systems can integrate with it, but also really secure. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one thing that I do know about IBC is that a lot of the um, security. And so one of the requirements comes from having, um, like a light client for your blockchain that can do certain kinds of verification on blocks. Yeah. I think I remember this now from, from whenever I heard it last Yeah, It must be a huge challenge. I mean, people like many, many companies in other technology spaces have created these kind of connector pieces in the past, but they tend to be connecting to things that conform much more to certain standards um, whereas mm-hmm. trying to create something that connects a whole bunch of things that probably don't conform to any kind of standard. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, yeah, I get the feeling some people involved might start to think, why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's it's interesting too because one of the design goals um, of IBC was to make it, it's not dependent on the Cosmos hub, mm. you know? So I, I did say like the Cosmos hub exists to like connect lots of different things through mm. it. Um, and that is true, but... Uh, IBC is meant to be something that like any two blockchains could pick up and use to communicate yeah, directly. Yeah. Um, you can think of the hub as just like a convenience layer. Yeah. yeah maybe even being the kind of uh, con- con- confirmation standard in the first place. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah, and then yeah. you add your own bits on if you like, but you know that those won't uh, be part of that interconnectedness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, uh, there's a few other things that you've, you've kind of been, well, let, let's, uh, let's, let's maybe say, what are some of the other, uh, roles and companies you've worked at in the past? There's a few kind of things you've, you've done in the past I would like to refer to, but maybe we should actually bridge, bridge it a bit to give some context. Sure. So- <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see, how should I work backwards or forwards? <laughs> It's hard to work forwards, but yeah. <laughs> oh, I see what well, you mean. I, I mean, mean, should I, should uh, I like... I see what you mean. Uh, let's go backwards slightly. You don't have to go all the way. Okay. You know, we don't need to know your high school record, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I'll... Well, I'll just talk about my previous yeah. um, blockchain experience. Sure. How's that? So um, I started working in the blockchain space uh, five years mm-hmm. ago, like five years ago to this month, actually, um, which in, you know, the grand scheme of things is like not that long. Yeah. But in the blockchain world, it's a really long time, as you know. Stone age. Um, yeah. And so just to like orient everyone and sort of what, you know, what spring 2015 was like in blockchain land, um, uh, Ethereum hadn't launched yet, right? Um, and the word blockchain was spelled with a space in the middle. So, so um, it was like not like a word, right? Like the Bitcoin white... Bitcoin existed, um, but even the Bitcoin white paper didn't use the word blockchain. Mm-hmm. This was like really before, um, this was like right before sort of the era of uh, like blockchain, not Bitcoin yeah. became really yeah. popular. 
Right. And so I was sort of um, immersed in that world uh, in, in a way. Um, so the, the company I joined at that time um, was a company called Chain. Okay. Because this was also early enough that you could call your blockchain yeah. company, something like that. Um, and we did a whole bunch of different things. We, again, the, we, we were in the um, sort of general enterprise blockchain space for a while. Um, when I first joined, we were actually working with Bitcoin directly. Yep. We were Bitcoin API, um, did uh, sort of like third-party asset stuff on top of the Bitcoin okay. blockchain for a while. Lots of that um, stuff. Um, that company got acquired by um, uh, the f- another blockchain company called Interstellar, oh, yep. which was yep, yep. <laughs> on the for-profit side of the Stellar ecosystem. Yep. So I just sort of laid out all of the entities in the the Cosmos space. I will not do that for Stellar because it's also no, like I, uh, I have I have one friend who actually I meant to message this morning and I completely forgot. So thanks for the reminder. Who's super into Stellar and he's the only person I've ever heard mention it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Stellar is a funny one because it's like been around for quite a while and it's a very mature system um, in a lot of ways. Uh, um, and they've just had like this sort of laser focus on um, remittances, which is yeah. which is really cool and a very uh, practical um, and like high impact real world use case. Um, so I worked at Interstellar for about a year and then um, I moved to Berlin, started working uh, at Tendermint um, in the, or in the Tendermint ecosystem. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been here since then. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what have generally your roles been? That's actually one slight thing I think I missed right at the beginning is uh, what kind yeah. of work have you done in these companies? Um, so for the last three years or so, I've been in on the management side of things. Yep. So leading engineering teams, um, you know, my official titles have often had like VP of engineering somewhere in them. Um, but uh, really, I would say like engineering management trying to make teams as effective as possible. Um, you know, working a bit on the technical side, definitely trying, enjoying the opportunity to write code when I can, um, but really being in a capacity where um, my job is to enable the people around me to be as effective um, and as like happy as possible. Yep. So that's what I've been doing for the past few years. Before that, I was, I was in straight up engineering yep. roles, um, you know, writing code, designing systems, things like that. So you've given me the nice segue I was looking for. Great. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, the, the PR people use, I don't think there's any, I'm not revealing the fourth wall by <laughs> mentioning that. Um, <laughs> sent a couple of links of some posts you wrote some time ago, some of which caught my eye because they crossed over with various things I've been talking about. In fact, uh, there's one here in particular about hackathons and I've been intending to speak to someone about hackathons for ages and completely forgot. So this is a, a nice uh, uh, sort of squashing two things together. It's about running inclusive hackathons. And this is actually something that um, has resonated with me on for various reasons. Me, personally, because I have mostly always done um, – I did do computer science. I can code, but I'm also one of these people that was better at other things around code um, and have done much more – tech writing work, documentation work, DevRel work, that kind of thing, like explaining code more than doing it. And even mm-hmm. someone like myself, when I go to a hackathon, although actually how I first got into those roles were through hackathons or code sprints as they were called then, um, you know, you turn up to hackathons and 
there's not always anything for you to do. And hackathons tend to say, or maybe that's not the right thing to say, but we'll get to that in a minute. But hackathons often try this aspect of saying, you know, all sorts of people are welcome, different skill groups, different um, skill levels, et cetera, et cetera. But often you find that if you're not coding, you're kind of at a loose end some of the time. Um, <laughs> you always kind of have something to do at particular times or say you do design and then the developers just throw your designs out anyway throughout the process <laughs> because it's a hackathon, you don't have much time. So, you know, there's, there's that inclusivity um, from mm-hmm. the, the role aspect. There's also obviously inclusivity on all sorts of other aspects as well. And the reason I really like this post is you mentioned the whole, whole kind of gamut of this, things like beginners, mm-hmm. uh, things like different prizes, Things like different food, which is um, things like good hygiene. I mean, that's especially pertinent now, but um, <laughs> something that jumps out at me a lot. Codes of conduct. I think that one is mostly, this post is a few years old. That one is mostly good these days. Uh, calendars. Yeah. This is one that I have seen actually a lot, surprisingly. Uh, different groups and, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Language, and language is a big one for me. Um, and then creativity, individuality, and teamwork. I think that connects a lot of these together quite nicely. But yeah, without, I hope I haven't given too much away from the post already. But uh, yeah, explain maybe where that, what motivated you to, to come up with these ideas in the first place. And I guess in any of the hackathons you've been involved with as a participant or as an organizer, how, how successful have you found applying some of these ideas? Yeah, so I I should begin by saying that that post is, like you said, it's a few years old, but I think it's like six or maybe even seven years old. Um, And it's really based on my experiences going to college hackathons Mm -hmm. um, when I was a student. And I really, um, uh, that was like a huge part of my college experience. I absolutely loved the hackathon scene. I think it was really, really key to my like success getting into the industry, it really helped me, you know, kickstart my career. Um, and so I, you know, viewed them and continue to view them as like a really, really important thing, especially for college students. Um, that said, a lot has changed in in the last six or seven years. I mean, like you mentioned, code of conducts are now pretty much ubiquitous. Um, but at the time they were were sort of uh, novel or or even like controversial yeah, at times. Yeah, yeah. I remember so, those days, so it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's really interesting because I, I think a lot of um, stuff that I wanted to write down because uh, because it seemed novel is is has like the cool thing is that it's 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 not novel anymore, right? Um, so that's that's quite nice. Um, but uh, yeah, and also just to like kind of um, uh, share a little bit more context on what all of that was like. Um, that was a time when hackathons were starting to replace a lot of the um, sort of like older or more traditional forms of on-campus recruiting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was partly why they were really important. Yeah. Um, like, like this could be your key to your first yeah. full-time job. Yeah. Um, and so making sure that they were as equitable and inclusive as possible to as many people as possible um, was, was, and probably still is really important. Um, but like I said, a lot has changed and it's actually, it's been funny. I've, I've been in this like um, 
kind of online quarantine yeah. hackathon. And I haven't actually been like really participating myself just because like I'm doing a lot of other stuff, but I've been going to the demo sessions. Um, and it's, it's been funny because it's like a lot of people who were at those college hackathons and a lot of my friends um, from that time, including people who I like haven't really seen much of since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because um, you know, back in those college days, it was very much like, okay, you have 24 hours or 48 hours to do all this stuff. Um, you know, we're going to get like two hours of sleep, like in the stairwell, we're going to, you know, eat nothing but pizza. We're going to drink, you know, all these Red Bulls or whatever. And then we're going to like, feel like shit for two weeks. Um, so it's been very funny to, to be back with all these people because like the kickoff happened and the guy running it, who's who was a frequent hackathon partner of mine in college begins by saying like, you know, everyone's mental health is the most important (laughs) thing here. Um, If you can't, you know, make a session you can't participate, like, don't worry, no questions asked. Like the most important thing is just to, to, you know, have fun and like have some, you know, hopefully build some cool stuff, Mm. but like no pressure, you come first, which is just such a funny, Mm. Mm. it was like, okay, we all really have, we've all really grown up and everyone's now sleeping eight hours a night. Um, And that's a good thing. Do you wonder actually, because one of the other things you said there about diversity of prizes, whereas a lot of hackathons do seem to have transitioned from this win $50,000 or euros or whatever to kind of a wider gamut of smaller prizes and especially this kind of, uh, used for this recruitment culture, uh, especially the corporate organized ones. Do you wonder if maybe that that, um, that attitude has changed be- for some reason because of that? Like there's, I don't know, there's less incentive for people to go nuts because they're not – I mean, I used to know, make people who made a living out of winning hackathons, um, and I wonder if that's even a reality anymore. Yeah, so strangely, like I think that era of like the, you know, $50,000 or yeah. 100K prizes – sort of happened in between me writing that post and now, (laughs) like, because I think sort of hackathons became really big, started becoming a thing. Um, like a, like a, in the meme sense, almost like they started spreading around, uh, I don't know, 2010 or 2011, like they existed before that, but they weren't like a thing. Um, and I feel like it was a few years after that, that they kind of hit that like huge jackpot thing. And yeah, I mean, that was when, like you mentioned, people could make a living off of it and, and people were, uh, you'd, you'd have basically like professional hackathon teams go in with an idea, maybe mostly preformed or, or, or whatever it was. Um, and I think that takes, can take a lot of like joy out of, out of the experience. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to see and hear that that's not really, um, such a thing anymore. And I do think that, you know, having a wider variety of smaller prizes and things like that um, can go a long way to incentivize people to build things that are fun or weird um, or stuff like that. Mm. And I feel like I could have had an entire interview just on the subject alone, but I do want to talk about one other so <laughs> before we run sure. out of time. So just to wrap this one up, I wonder how have you found the specific kind of general blockchain but also specific to tendermint and cosmos hackathons i've attended a couple and i have personally found that because it's still a very niche subject with a lot of potential inherent sometimes intentional complexity um 
they can be very odd hackathons. Uh, but yeah, that's my experience. What's yours been like? Yeah, I actually haven't. <laughs> I have not myself been to any Cosmos hackathons. Yeah. Um, I, I sort of joined the project and then, um, and then, you know, world worldwide travel uh, slowed yeah. down. But, um, but uh, I think that there is an interesting challenge inherent to any blockchain um, project or, uh, sort of around hackathons, which is that hackathons are so much about like prototyping things quickly and mm. sometimes even showing like, like showing a vision before you have all of the functionality in place. Yeah. Um, and I think blockchains are actually in a lot of ways, like kind of poorly suited for that mm. because there's a lot of underlying complexity um, to create something that like maybe doesn't look that complex. Mm. Like the blockchain provides a lot of, um, or, or like the blockchain piece of many of these projects provides functionality or security or um, like audit auditability um, only when the project gains some history or only once it has yeah. a certain number of users. Yeah. And these things are like really hard to demonstrate in a hack yeah. context, right? Yeah. So I think it's actually extra important to be building like in the, when you combine blockchain and hackathons, I think it's especially important to be building things kind of for the joy of it or as a learning experience or to um, um, just kind of see what's possible versus doing that very like demo driven, like, like in it to win it kind of thing, you know, because it is, I think harder to build a really, flashy demoable experience on top of a blockchain yeah it's actually strange one of my favorite um sort of partial winners of a blockchain hackathon was from f denver uh last year not so 2019 actually by one of your teammates uh billy renacamp um and their their team (laughs) and they made a a browser plugin for debugging um blockchain requests and that's actually a perfect hackathon project. Like it leverages the blockchain, but not necessarily directly. You know, it's something that you can build. Uh, it's useful. <laughs> yeah. It was actually one of my favorite ones um, kind of ever. I, I, I never managed to keep up whether they actually continued making it, which is often another issue of hackathons. But it was just, uh, it made a lot of sense. Um, it wasn't cool or sexy, but it made a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I actually think maybe less obvious from that project, but I think Billy's a really great yeah. example of someone who brings a lot of um, like a very interesting background yep. to a project yep. and has produced a lot of really yep. cool um, hackathon stuff because of it. Like he has this background as an artist. Yep. And so I think that perspective, um, I think he's a great example of, of, you know, bringing a different kind of background exactly. to the table and, and bringing a lot. Before we go hackathon. down rabbit warren speaking about people that no one have any idea who we're talking about, let's, uh, <laughs> sure. let's get back out of it. Um, Absolutely. It's our Berlin crypto corner. Um, uh Something or others. I can't think of the right word. Yeah, just it. trying to say there are there are people who are artists who bring you know <laughs> yeah, really exactly, cool blockchain exactly. hackathon projects. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So um, one of the other articles that caught my eye, uh, predominantly because it reminded me of something I wrote some time ago myself, which I called the great pun: "Tech your privilege at the door." Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, was very I like that very much. Time. Um, yeah, this is something you wrote again a little while back uh, on technical entitlement, and that's not me saying what it's on. That's actually the name of it as well. Um, yeah, <laughs> and you have another one that I feel like the two somewhat relate a little uh, mm-hmm. around imposter syndrome. 
I don't want to dwell mm-hmm. too much on the imposter syndrome because, again, you wrote this some time ago and this is a topic that has now um, actually written about and spoken about quite a lot and probably much more in the past few years. And whilst it's not a solved problem, it's certainly one that people are kind of more aware of. Um, mm-hmm. Although I feel like these two somewhat interconnect a little bit. Um, and actually, I think the the thing that interested me on this technical entitlement one was this this sort of further aspects of privilege. There's There's always these obvious aspects of privilege. I am male, which gives me a certain amount of more obvious privilege. We're both uh, native English speakers. That gives us a lot of privilege. We're both from North America slash Europe, et cetera. But then there's these kind of other levels that are not always obvious. Um, and it's something interesting you kind of go into in this post around um, upbringing, background, education, et cetera, um, mm-hmm. leading to other forms of entitlement or, or privilege. Um yeah, I don't know. Well, I know I'm asking you to wreck your memory here on some of these. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, that was another thing I wrote. I definitely wrote that um, in college. Yeah. And I think I then reposted it a year later to uh, Medium, um, where I was working at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I think both that post and the post about imposter syndrome were really just trying to get at like the sort of more human experiences uh, and sort of human parts of being, you know, a student at a competitive computer science program. Um, And so, you know, I think a lot of. Yeah. Okay. That makes, that makes the context makes a bit more sense. That kind of assumption of, oh, you come from, if people go and read the article, you know, you come from this particular background, surely you get this kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, and so I'm, I am, I I admit I am kind of trying to like bring myself back into that mindset and remember (laughs) kind of all the things. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, a little bit, definitely. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think it was, it was really interesting um, to kind of enter this world where everyone was very competitive Mm. um, and it was kind of macho and then people were trying to like one up each other all the time. Um, And, you know, when I reflect on that, the stuff that I'm, grateful for in retrospect, um, are some of the efforts that, uh, the, um, whether it was like the student organizations or the, um, faculty themselves did to try to level the playing field. Um, I really appreciate a lot of that stuff. So one thing that was, um, sort of an interesting trend, I guess, that had been going on for a few years, um, by the time I started college was that a lot of the like very first intro to programming classes were taught in like OCaml or oh. SML or other yeah. functional languages. Um, and, you know, at the time it was kind of like, this is like, I had been privileged to uh, have done a lot of programming before I got to college. Um, and when I got to school, it was like annoying in some ways that I had to almost relearn how to program yeah. because my yeah. brain wasn't wired for functional programming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was actually a, it was like, ended up being a really fun learning experience once I got the hang of it. Yeah. Um, and B, it was a phenomenal way for them to level the playing field such that people who yeah. had more programming experience yeah. Yeah. were yeah. on the same level as people who had, did not have as much. It's actually a very good point. Yeah. It makes some sense. Uh, strangely, my experience kind of went the reverse way. Um, okay. I had, well, I actually had a father who was somewhat into programming, very young in my life. And then he kind of just abandoned it completely and almost became 
something of a Luddite for some time. Um, so uh, exposure wasn't particularly helpful. He was more into <laughs> maths and physics, which at that age is just a bit over your head sometimes. <laughs> um, sure. But it's interesting. I, I did a very good course where we learned a lot of very interesting things. And then all I ended up really doing for years was what a lot of people did in the early 2000s of like – PHP and programming CMSs, which is not sure. massively interesting, really. So, so it kind of went the other way. And that actually a lot of what I learned, I ended up unlearning because I just never needed it. And I wish, I wish in some respects I had done something more interesting with it. But um, yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. I'll, I'll bring this back actually a little bit to blockchain. Yeah, no, I because... wanted to bring it back anyway. So go for it. You, no, you but I think this is the perfect. Um, yeah, okay. I think I think I know you're connect perfectly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think like blockchains are actually let you apply a lot of the things that you learn in computer science programs. You know, there actually is some complex uh, math involved in the cryptography. There is some complex distributed system stuff that you have to apply, um, and so. And there's a lot of papers. You can spend a lot of time reading papers. And so it's, it's, it's cool because <clears throat> you actually have to, um, uh, I mean, you certainly don't have to have a formal computer science background to work in the blockchain space. Plenty of people don't. But I think there's more overlap between a lot of these blockchain projects and protocols and the academic stuff than a lot of the um, uh other kinds of programming um, that that computer science grads um, or anyone else can take on, right? And so it was actually it was this funny thing where I um, so I didn't finish school. I, I left halfway through my degree to to go work at Medium mm-hmm. actually, and um, like I loved working at Medium. I learned so much there. Um, it also did not seem to really connect very much to my formal education mm-hmm. in any way. And I was like, I was like, I really, you know, nope zero regrets about, about quitting school early. Um, and I still generally have zero regrets about that, but occasionally when I'm like reading a paper and there's like some, you know, particular notation or it's, it's written in a really formal way. I'm like, man, if I had a little bit more experience in school, like reading these things and writing proofs, (laughs) that would have been helpful right now. Um, so I would say it's the first, it's the only sort of part of the, the the space that I've been in where I'm like, yeah. oh, there's like a, a strong academic yeah. connection. I get you. My course was very practical, which was very useful at the time. But then there's a lot of that formality, which sometimes, yeah, especially in this space when you're reading a white paper or something, it's like, oh, I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> All right. Right. Let's, uh, this has been a very good conversation. I usually try to keep them to half an hour and we've gone to – Nearly 50. So, <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. So, let's, yeah. uh, no, it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good sign. Um, let's wrap up. I'd like to, the question I always like to kind of wrap up with asking is so, in your particular corner of the, the kind of Tendermint Cosmos world or in the, the, the world more generally that you know about, or even personally, what's on kind of the, the roadmap for the next six months, as it were? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing is IBC. Like I said, that's really what everyone in the ecosystem is, is driving towards and pointing to right now. Um, personally, I'm also really excited about some of the ongoing stuff on Tendermint Core mm-hmm. itself. Um, we recently grew the team a little bit and we've been able to just actually start shipping 
um, some of the things that user, users have been asking for for a long time. Um, so we're about to ship uh, a feature called State Sync, yep. okay. um, which will actually let you like spin up a new node on the ecosystem without replaying the entire blockchain history, um, which you know is like something people have been asking for for a long time. So I'm very excited to to ship that. Um, I'm I'm very excited to continue to improve the general um, accessibility of the project, and I don't really mean that in the like accessibility like alley um, sense of the word so much as like accessibility like everyone and sort of across the board um and uh uh because because i think that's something that had fallen by the wayside a little bit um and basically i i sort of philosophically don't think that that software is ever done yeah um and so i'm just so happy to like be helping with bringing tendermint core like into its next the next phase of its life yeah cool well Maybe I'll talk to someone in another year (laughs) and we'll see where everything got to. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll be reminiscing about the IBC launch by then. Hopefully, uh, if we're both still in Berlin, we can actually meet in person. I mean, we could have that would be lovely normally, but anyway, yeah. (laughs) Right. Yes. But I haven't left my house in two weeks. So I, yeah, I actually, (laughs) I I got, whilst I was uh, doing a quick bit of digging, I got, uh, distracted by one of your Twitter threads around this subject, but we won't, we won't go. Okay. Into that, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's a whole other episode. I'm sure. That was my interview with Tess from Interjane. And uh, we talked a lot of different subjects there. I hope you found that interesting. Um, updates this week. I put out my first episodes of the, I'm calling it DX teardown for now. I don't really know if, um, if that's a good title or not. That's what it is for now. I looked at source graph. I hit some problems. I contacted Source Graph and we had a really good chat on Twitter about those problems. So that was a good first effort. Uh, I meant to have done more yesterday on uh, my gaming live stream and that new DX live stream, but I had a really tight deadline on another project and they will be happening later in the week. I'm currently recording the second trial episode of the Board Game Jerk podcast and we are editing the final stories for my new storytelling podcast um so those are all in progress there uh, article wise i most recently published a post on measuring metrics in open source for dzone so you can uh, hop along to dzone or christianchiller.com to read that uh, i think that's about it for now um i've been mostly pretty heads down on some work for clients so but a few more things will be emerging soon i'm gonna have a bit more time for projects again in june so a few of the things i've been mentioning but haven't seen much progress, we'll start having a bit more progress again soon. You can also sign up for my office hours if you like, if you need any help with documentation work. Uh, just go to my Twitter account, at Chris Chinch on Twitter, and see the pinned tweet, and you can make an appointment with me there, and I'd love to help you through the projects. And more on that coming soon. Um, I feel like I've been saying that a lot, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I do put this out every week. I remember I used to do this every day, and uh, I don't think... Yeah, updates would always be pretty much the same. Things take a little bit of time, especially when they're spare time projects. So, as always, you can find more at christianchiller.com. You can um, find my newsletters, my other podcasts, uh, and many other things there. And uh, please rate, review, share the show if you've enjoyed it. And until next time, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.